will please remain standing. Let's take our Bibles out. And let me have you turn them to the book of Mark, to chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, our reading for this morning will be verses 27 through the end of the chapter, 27 through 38. We will be concerned with the middle portion of that reading this morning, uh, verses 31 through 33, just three verses this morning. But let's read all of that portion together, beginning in verse 27 of chapter 8 of Mark's Gospel. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation Of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And let me read this last verse here. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Pray with me, please. Our Lord, we thank you once again for your most excellent word that you have given to us, that we might know ourselves, that we might know you, that we might know the grace that you show to sinners through Jesus Christ and the salvation that you offer through faith in him. Bless our time now as we look into your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. One of radio's most endearing and well-loved personalities was a man by the name of Paul Harvey. Many of you probably listened to Paul Harvey. Um, His various news and comments shows ran from 1951 through 2008. Paul Harvey's homespun manners, his homespun phrases, his emphatic style of delivery, as well as several catchphrases that are attributed to him, have long endured and are widely recognized and beloved. I think he is perhaps most well known for one of his programs where he would present 
little known or forgotten stories or facts on a variety of subjects uh, with some key element of the story, very often the name of some well-known person, held back until the very end. And those programs would always end the same way. Paul Harvey would say, and now you know the rest of the story. Well, this morning, people of God, we are continuing to look at the story of Christ. And we are looking right now at this middle section of Mark's record of the life of Jesus. And as we looked last week at verses 27 through 30 here in chapter 8, we reflected on the the high point in the gospel there in those verses, the thematic center to Mark's record as Jesus asked his disciples, first of all, who do people say that I am? And then, most importantly, he said, but who do you say that I am? To which Peter, you'll remember, replied on behalf of all the twelve. You see it there in verse 29. His answer was, you are the Christ. Or more fully, as Matthew records it, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. In Matthew 16, 16. Peter's great confession, as that is called. And we saw last week the The critical statement of Jesus to Peter, which we saw applies to everyone who confesses Christ or Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, as the anointed one of God, that that understanding that and being able truly to confess that is something that does not come as a result of natural reflection or evaluation, but it comes only through a sovereign work of the Holy Spirit upon a person, opening his heart, opening his eyes, opening his ears. And that's true whether that person is the Apostle Peter or you or me. But after earlier statements that Jesus has made to his disciples, Remember, we've, we've looked at those rebuking them very often for their unbelief, for their lack of understanding. You only have to look back, actually, into verses 17 through 21 to see it, where Jesus chides them and, and asks them, do you still not understand? But after all of that, this confession of of Peter, the confession, and Jesus' statement in response to Peter, where he said, blessed are you, Simon, Barjona, son of John. Blessed are you, Peter, he said, because the Father has revealed this to you. Well, that statement from Christ to the disciples must have come as a welcome comment. Oh, we're, maybe we're finally getting this. We're finally understanding and how their hearts must have soared hearing and making this, this great confession that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. And that Jesus, as the Messiah, according to their understanding, would sometime soon lead a great restoration of the Jewish nation. That he would lead them out from under the oppression of the Gentiles that had so long ruled over them. A great story that they see in Christ as as getting ready to be uh, completed and unfolded as Jesus the Messiah comes to free them from their oppression, from the Romans. But now, 
we come to verse 31. And, well, to the rest of the story. And it begins with a shocking revelation. I mentioned that this second section of Mark's gospel, uh, last week we talked about that, which runs from here through chapter 10, sees Jesus spending more time with his disciples, uh, teaching them, more focused on them. And here we see that right out of the gate. Look at verse 31. It says, and he began to teach them. And he has here, right at the outset, in the context of this great confession that Peter has made, something critically important to teach them. And it's a doozy. In order that we might get the full impact of the narrative here, try to place yourselves in in the minds of the disciples. We, standing here on this side of the cross... We understand all of the things that were going to happen to Jesus. We've read about them. We've read about what uh, the the impact and the import of those things are. But the disciples, as they sit here uh, with Jesus outside of Caesarea Philippi, that hasn't happened yet. As I mentioned uh, a while ago, the Jewish people have lived under various external empires since since 586 B.C., when the southern tribe of Judah fell, was conquered by the Babylonian Empire, the Babylonian army, and was taken into exile. Then, under the Medo-Persian Empire, they conquered the Babylonians. Well, Cyrus, of course, in his famous decree that you can read about in 2 Chronicles 36.22 or Ezra 1.1, he gave permission, remember, for the Jews to come back to return to their land to rebuild the temple. But the people were still under the authority of that empire. Then the Greeks came along under Alexander the Great and defeated the Persian army in 331 B.C., And after that, in 146, the Romans conquered the Greeks. And that remained the situation as we come to this text this morning. But the Old Testament, before the time, and certainly gaining ascendancy in the time way back of King David, and the promises, remember, that were made to David that one of his descendants would reign on his throne forever, there had been a a hope based on the Scripture, based on the prophecies of Scripture, that that one would come, a descendant of David, and a servant of God, who would bring about and oversee the restoration of God's people and of the kingdom of God. The Old Testament is awash in various streams of prophecies about the coming Messiah, which ebb and flow and intermingle as they flow forward toward the coming of this one referred to as the Mashiach, the Messiah, and also as the Eved Yahweh, the servant of God, the servant of the Lord. He is prophesied in many ways here as a shepherd, there as a redeemer, here as a prince, there as a king. And in the mind of the Jewish rabbis, and therefore of the Jewish people, the Messiah was expected to come and expected to be a great political leader, an expert in in Jewish law, a charismatic leader, 
who could inspire others to follow his example. He would be a great military leader like David was. He'd be a great judge who renders righteous decisions. And that is the picture that was in the mind of Peter and the other 11 disciples as Peter made the confession that his leader, the rabbi from Nazareth, Jesus, was in fact that long-awaited Messiah who was to come. The Christos, the Christ. But there are other Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah, about the servant of the Lord, the servant of Yahweh, that for some reason, an inexplicable reason really, the Jewish scribes read and and did not connect to the Messiah. Though it's very clear that they should have. Possibly the reason is that these other prophecies were not so positive as the ones that likened the Messiah to David. Primary among these passages was the one that we read in our Old Testament reading this morning, Isaiah 53. One of four what are referred to as servant songs in the book of Isaiah, and one which so clearly describes that the aspects of the work of the Messiah, which Jesus himself will now reveal in our passage this morning, and he will reveal it to the shock of his disciples. Look at verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. So as you hear, as you see here, there are now several terrible aspects to this and one wonderful aspect to this that really overrides the evil of the others, but new things that are going to also be true about the Messiah. And Jesus says about himself. He says that the Son of Man first must suffer many things. That's new to the disciples. But Jesus' life, we know, was a life of suffering. And not just the last 12 hours of it, though the cross was, without a doubt, the epitome of his suffering. But he suffered by living among sinners. Holy God, in a human nature, living among sinners. And their sin and their unbelief. He suffered by living among them. He suffered their selfishness. He suffered in their rejection. He suffered denial by the head of his very disciples. He suffered betrayal by one of his disciples. He suffered arrest, false charges, the inability of his companions on the night before he was to be killed to even stay awake and to pray with him, a false trial. And then the disgrace and shame poured out on him then and right through his hours on the cross. This aspect of Jesus' ministry is so precisely and clearly described in Isaiah 53 that we read this morning that it reads just as Psalm 22 does, like an eyewitness account of the crucifixion written hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before the events took place. 
As Isaiah 53.3 says, he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, acquainted with suffering. The second thing that Jesus mentions is that he would be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. He came to his own, John says, and his own did not receive him. And this, of course, this rejection is, is what leads to much of Jesus' suffering and to his ultimate crucifixion. We've already seen the scribes and the Pharisees, how they are in their rejection and hostility toward Jesus, how that grows and grows, even reaching the point of them having discussions with that group known as the Herodians, a Jewish political party that sympathized with Herod and with Rome. The Jews, the Pharisees, getting together with them to figure out how they might destroy Jesus, Mark 3, 6. This prophecy itself, that he would be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, that's a shocking revelation. The elders were the leaders of the synagogue. They were the ones who helped the people in their religious lives. The chief priests, that points to the members of the Sanhedrin who belonged to the high priestly families. They were sort of the religious elite of the day. The scribes, those are the experts in the law, the theologians, the biblical scholars of the day. And these groups who are tasked and had dedicated themselves to guide the Jewish people in the matters of things, the things of God, Jesus predicts here, and we know that he was absolutely correct in this, that after all of their study, after uh, all that was that, that due to their pride and their envy, that they would reject their own Messiah and put him to death on a cross. Their Messiah, whom they were expecting. So he was rejected by the elders and the chief priests. And then the third thing, he says, and be killed. And of course, it all leads here. That the Messiah, as Isaiah, Isaiah 53 says, would be taken away. It's interesting that he says to his disciples that, that he would be killed. It's a testimony there to the compassion of Jesus toward his disciples that here at the first mention of this part of his, uh, of his ministry and his coming death, that he spares them the, the gruesome, horrific details of his death, that he would not just be killed, but that he would die the horrific death of crucifixion, one of the worst means of capital punishment that has ever been devised by man. This is the first of three times that Jesus predicts his death and resurrection and shares it with his disciples. Here he simply says that he will be killed. He's not going to add those other details until the third of those uh, proclamations, those revelations of his coming death, which happens not too long before he enters Jerusalem, uh, and these things are all set in motion. But there was still more, and as shocking as his death and, uh, and his saying that he was going to be killed must have been to the disciples, this Perhaps more so just because of the unintelligibility of it to them. He says, and after three days, rise again. Now, they probably didn't even have 
much of a hook in their mind on which to hang this statement unless they, like, unlike, unlike the Jewish religious leaders in the past, had seen the servant songs of Isaiah that they were speaking of the Messiah. If they had, they, they may have been able to recognize that the glory of the Son of Man was to come only through his humble traversing of the true Via Dolorosa, the way of suffering. Because it's through his suffering and as a result of it that he would ultimately ascend as the Son of Man up from the grave and ultimately to the place of ultimate glory. Because the one who was obedient to death is then the one who, according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, and as the ultimate proof of his deity and of the Father's acceptance of his work of redemption, would be raised from the dead on the third day. And this is well Isaiah points to. In Isaiah 52, as we began that reading, it says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. And in this, we see here the the ultimate victory of Jesus prophesied by Jesus. But the disciples' understanding of all of this is still quite a ways off. In fact, in the next chapter, in chapter 9, Mark records this, so they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. They won't get it until after it happens. So here's the shocking revelation. Shocking but clear as as the beginning of verse 32 says, and he said this plainly. Remember we've learned earlier that Jesus taught the crowds with parables. But he says this to his disciples in a way that, that even they can understand. And not just that, because the word that's translated plainly here doesn't just mean clearly, but it has the idea of boldly and confidently as Jesus makes these predictions, these prophecies. This revelation of Jesus regarding himself in the messianic office gets, as we will see, to the very essence of his mission. We sometimes think of the fact and express the fact that Jesus was born to die for a purpose. But next, as it so often happens when we are told something that we don't like or that we don't agree with, this revelation does not sit well with the disciples, especially Peter. And in verse 32, we see his surprising rebuke. It's the second thing that we're looking at. Now, Beloved, we need to admit, and I think we can admit, that sometimes we, by our actions, we sinfully express disagreement with God and His Word, don't we? It's what we do every time we disobey His Word, right? If God tells us one thing and we decide to do something different, aren't we really saying, God, I know better in this situation or to quote the original, has God truly said? That's what we say when we disobey. I know better what will be most glorifying to you. I know better what will be most profitable for my spiritual and physical well-being. I know better 
how a decision should be decided, a plan should be undertaken. I know better. I appreciate your suggestion, Lord, uh, that you give me in your word or through the ministry of the church, but I've got this. Well, here, Peter takes that to a whole new level. As he hears these things that Jesus has has laid out, Peter reacts. Look at verse 32. It says, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Wow. If nothing else, Peter has, and I'll use a Yiddish expression, Peter has chutzpah. Can you picture this? Who, does Jesus, who do people say that I am, Jesus asked. Peter says, you're the Messiah. You're the Christ. You're the Son of the living God. Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon. Blessed are you, Peter, because of that confession. A confession that my Father has granted to you. And as the one uh, you have rightly professed me to be, let me explain to you what is going to happen now. But it's such a departure from what Peter and the other disciples would have expected that Peter says, Jesus, uh, come over here for a second. We have to talk. And then Peter, Mark says, begins to rebuke him. Now rebuke is a very strong word in the original. It's the same word that is used in the Gospels to refer to what Jesus does to the demons when he casts them out. He rebukes them. That's what Peter's doing to Jesus. In Matthew's extended telling of, of this story, we get Peter's words that he speaks. Matthew 16, says, And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Preachers from time immemorial have made note of the irony of the fact that Peter says, far be it from you, Lord, Master, you who I serve, you who I look to. You you missed it here, Lord. Far be it from you. This shall never happen to you. Sorry, I don't know where you got your information on this, but it can't happen this way. Now, now as, as fellow human beings, I think we can all understand Peter's reaction, even if we can't agree with it. And if Peter had really understood the confession that he had just made, he would surely have never said what he just said. And he would not, therefore, have given Jesus the cause to say what Jesus now says in response to Peter's surprising rebuke, because we come thirdly to a startling response. Remember here, Peter has, we've seen in the, in the healings that Jesus has taken the people aside in order to heal them. Here, Peter has taken Jesus aside in order to rebuke him, to scold him. And that's well what he was doing. But as he says this, the text tells us that Jesus turns and sees his disciples. Notice, his disciples, not Peter's disciples, but Jesus' disciples. What a tense scene. Sometimes it's, it's a little disarming in the middle of a very tense situation to notice something light or to think of something light. And in this very tense situation as it unfolds, Peter here rebuking Jesus Christ as Jesus turned and saw his disciples. Think about what he saw. I picture incredulous faces 
wide-eyed at what Peter had just done, perhaps with mouths hanging open just a bit. What will Jesus say? What will Jesus do? Well, whatever they may have imagined, it was really nothing compared to the words that come out of the mouth of our Lord next. Verse 33. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, what is Jesus saying here? You know, over in John 6, Jesus will say of his disciples, uh, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Even there, though, he, he speaks generally and he speaks in the third person. But here the text says that Mark says that he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. Now, I'm sure that Peter wasn't expecting that. And none of the gospel writers record Peter's response. But Jesus' full response is, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Why does Jesus refer to Peter as Satan? Is he, is he looking at Peter but talking to Satan? Is Peter at this moment being possessed by the prince of demons himself? Well, no. But Peter is giving in to the same kind of thought patterns as Satan. He is unwittingly thinking like Satan. That's the point. And the Lord recognizes it. Remember that just before Jesus' public ministry started, that that Jesus was driven after his baptism by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to face the temptations of the devil... And that at the end of that time, after the 40 days and after the the temptations, after Jesus had successfully withstood those temptations and had sent Jesus away, Luke records that he, that is Satan, departed from him until an opportune time. Well, here it is. An opportune time. And it's ironic, I think, that it comes right after God's great revelation to Peter of the identity and the work of the Messiah and of Peter's own powerful confession of that identity. To then have Peter turn around and through his own words bring a temptation before Jesus that he might consider another way to fulfill his work. By that, Peter is unknowingly reading right out of the playbook of the devil himself. Remember how Satan had offered Jesus quite a deal in the wilderness temptations. He took Jesus up to a high place and showed him the kingdoms of the world, the text says, in a moment of time, and said to him, I will give you all of this, implied without the suffering, without the rejection, the things that he mentions here, without the death, if you'll simply bow to me and worship me. Jesus, I will give you the glory without the cross. That's what Satan said. That's what Peter is repeating. No, you can't go through this horrific death, or you can't go through any death. You can't be rejected. You can't be killed. You're the Messiah. 
There must be another way. Not knowing that Satan had already offered Jesus another way. Peter is saying, take the glory without the cross. But Jesus knew that was a false glory. He knew that was an empty promise. That although, uh, just as he did with the devil when the devil presented it, that although the devil is the ruler of this world in a limited, contingent sense, it is just for a time. He is ruler of the world, but he is not the king of the world. And though he might offer the kingdoms of this world to Jesus, the kingdom that Jesus has received is a kingdom that is not of this world and yet encompasses all of the universe. And that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But now here comes the same temptation. This doesn't have to happen. This shouldn't happen. This mustn't happen, says Peter. And Peter, I'm sure, was quite quite prepared to be sure that it didn't happen. Remember the situation in the Garden of Gethsemane. Who pulled their sword in order to defend Jesus and to make sure that that didn't happen? It was Peter. And Jesus rightly then rebukes Peter. It's the same word here as it was when Peter rebuked Jesus. Because his mind, Peter's mind, was not reflecting the plan of God. Not reflecting the mission of Christ, but the temptation of Satan. And so Jesus commands the satanic thoughts and temptations which Peter is reflecting in his probably well-intentioned statement to get behind him, to be gone. How wonderful that that our Lord was so in tune with, with the plan of God. Of course, as a member of the divine Godhead, it was his plan as well. And that he was so alert to the plans and the schemes of the enemy. You know, we're to be that way as well. We're to be in tune with the plans of God and alert to the schemes of the enemy. Think of Ephesians 6. This is finally to us, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. Why? That you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. Our Lord never wavered from his course, never made a misstep, but he was tempted. And we see that here. And this is all part of the unchangeable plan of God, which actually leads us to our final point this morning, a sobering reminder. And that leads us back to to Jesus' revelation to the disciples here in this passage of what lay in store for him in his fulfillment of the office of the Messiah, of the anointed servant of God. Let me draw your attention to it, to a single word in verse 31. Do you see it there? The word is must. Verse 31 says, He began to teach them that the Son of Man must, must suffer 
many things, and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. Not may, not should, but must. These actions are all essential aspects of the calling of Christ. They carry the necessity, two necessities, the necessity of the decree and the necessity of the result of the action. The necessity of the decree means that the humiliation and the exaltation of Christ as we find them here, as we find them in passages like Isaiah 53, uh, like Philippians 2, they are all part, as Luke said in Acts 2, all part of the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. These things cannot but take place because God has decreed them to take place. But not merely as an exercise of God's authority. Not just as an exercise of his sovereignty. He didn't decree the sufferings and the glorification of his son merely because he could. But because they were the only way to accomplish redemption for God's elect. So these things also carry a necessity of purpose, a necessity of result. He had to be rejected by the religious leaders, so that he might suffer many things and ultimately in the unfolding of God's plan that he, though absolutely sinless and innocent, that he might be condemned and put to death. And put to death under the the Roman system of jurisprudence so that he might die what the Jews considered to be a cursed death. See, if the Jews would have killed him, they would have stoned him. But under the Roman system, he was crucified. And thus, as Paul says in Galatians 3.13, he redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And it is there, through those actions, that we, beloved, are redeemed. That our sins are forgiven. The curse removed and replaced by everlasting blessing in and through Christ. And not only was his suffering and death necessary, but because he fully and perfectly fulfilled the work given to him by the Father to do, because he was obedient to death, even death on the cross, the scripture says, therefore, God highly exalted him. Beginning with raising him from the dead on the third day, and then by receiving him back into heaven, giving to him all authority in heaven and on earth, he says in Matthew, and saying to him, this is from Psalm 110, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Beloved, let us today give thanks that Christ, the anointed one of God, suffered so much, overcame the temptation of the devil, and went to the cross that we might join Peter in his good confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that he was raised from the dead, that we might be raised unto eternal life. Mark says, Jesus says, that Jesus the Messiah will glorify his Father, and he will be glorified. And he will redeem all those who trust in him. But the path to that glory, the path to that redemption, leads through suffering. 
It leads to a cross and then to the resurrection. That's new to the disciples. Now the disciples know. Now we know. Now you know the rest of the story. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this passage that reveals to the disciples, reveals to us that Christ's work, that our salvation comes through the road of suffering. Not ours, but Christ's. We thank you that Christ has suffered, suffered the the ultimate suffering of your wrath so that we need not, so that we who trust in him will not. We thank you. Help that to be to us a great joy and a great impetus to us serving you with all that is in us every day and giving thanks. And we ask it all in his name. Amen.